How to create a glitch. Mastery of the system. The purpose of this volume is to elaborate the design of the system and to describe the steps towards the mastery of it. It begins with the idea presented in previous volumes. Namely, that reality is a construct which ultimately reflects our impulses. And it ends with the realization that the mastery of those impulses reveals the mastery of creation itself. How does one escape one's impulses? How does one direct them? For the person who masters their own impulses has the power to shape creation as he or she wills. Not in the sense of rearranging the pieces of the puzzle, or the players on the stage, but in the sense of choosing what direction it may go. Imagine for a moment that one goes to a hockey game. Imagine for a moment that one could rewind the play, so to speak, to a particular moment, and imagine for a moment that one could choose a point at which it should divert from its predicted course. That person would not be a watchmaker, no, because he or she could not shape the substance of being itself, rearrange it, reorder it, but very much like a watch repairman, he or she could fine-tune it. There is a moment in every person's life where he or she realizes that they are in control of the outcome. Not in the sense of being in power but in the sense of truly being in control of how an event turns out. In that moment, this person has the ability to choose to accept that responsibility or to not to. Again, I am not talking about control in a trivial sense. I am not talking about words or action. I am saying that in one moment in every person's life, their impulses are reflected in the substance of being. And in that moment that person can accept responsibility for everything and everyone. And if they choose to accept that, then the resonance of their impulses with reality itself will direct the course of history. But it is a terrible responsibility for one to accept. To know that each and every action that one does will determine the difference between life and death, and suffering, for some of us. So, how do we understand these impulses? How do we begin to see that our impulses are dictating the results of events nominally outside our control? The answer is to recognize that in one's life a person develop habits of self-hatred and self-love. These two impulses produce a veritable abundance of feelings and responses as we interact with the world around us. Perhaps you have fallen in love with sadness. Then, a part of you will dictate reality to produce scenarios that bring out sadness in your life. Perhaps another person has fallen in love with happiness, then, their impulses will direct reality in a certain way. No one's impulses are uniform, but the self-defeating, fatalistic attitude tends to produce events which confirm it, just as the optimistic self-loving attitude creates situations that bring it out. Now, imagine these impulses are strings, and the world is your vast puppet show. Contrary impulses twist people this way and that, while unified homogeneous impulses create a smooth delivery. Creating glitches is fundamentally about bringing out the hidden nature of reality so it can be observed. But, to shape reality, one must purify one's self in a particular way, so that one's impulses are seamless. Revealing that this is the truth shows one that we are all part of our own Truman Show reality. The purpose of this episode is to describe the pathway to the mastery of the system while building upon the concepts of direct ground, indirect ground and the consensual reality. Our beliefs provide the ground to our experience, one way or the other, either as direct ground or as indirect ground. 
Direct ground is acting upon a suppositional thought with reliance. Indirect ground is acting upon a contingent thought with reliance. What is a contingent thought? A contingent thought is a fixed perception of another. A failure to recognize that reality is malleable. A contingent thought emphasizes your objecthood. A suppositional thought recognizes the agency of your belief. The power of your perceptions emphasizes your subjecthood. In other words, if you can control your beliefs, if you manipulate them, you can control your experience of what ultimately occurs. Now, what does this mean? Every individual in our experience exists in a distinct reality, an occasional consonance in a discordance. A consensual reality which overlaps only in shades. That reality is defined internally by the fixed beliefs of the individual, specifically what they hold in direct and indirect ground. In other words, what another individual experiences is fundamentally distinct from what we experience even when we are both present. Now, what is the significance of this? Our perceptions of the present are merely a jumbled recycling of our perceptions of others in the past. What if you are not actually here? In Chapter 5, I talked about how there are two paths one can take toward enlightenment. The path of affirmation and the path of negation. In the one path the mind acts as a filter of experience through negation. In the other, experience acts as a filter of attachment. The path of affirmation is the path of suppositional thought. The path of negation is the path of contingent thought. But in the present, our consensual reality, the overlap in the disparate realities of each of us, is composed of recycled perceptions of others from the past. In this episode I'll be discussing the nature of attachment and possession. The first thing I'd like to discuss I call the grasping release. Accept the thing, make it your object, then release it. Everything must be released before it can be grasped, to recognize the agency of impermanence, the certainty of loss. You cannot begin to love another until you've accepted their freedom, accepted they aren't a possession. You can only accept their freedom if you let them go. Give them outs, as many as you can, the more the better, and see if they stay. If they ask for one thing, give them everything. If they strike you on the left side of the face, give them the right. Such is the grasping release. Release it before it ever enters your possession. But there is another path, its opposite. In this, you must grasp it before you let it go. This is the follow-through, the backspin. To hold something as yours, though it has passed on. To love something for only a moment before letting it fade. You must learn both to affirm and negate. Only in both, will you master the art of staying grounded in submission and release. Only through this path will you be able to sublimate your consciousness. Now, if we understand that every universe clings to us only to the degree that we invest our subjectivity in it, then mastering this art of the grasping release, gives us the power to define our universe as surely as we change our clothes. Of course this art can be taught physically, such as the methodology of martial arts, juggling, and other such things. But to truly appreciate its power, it must be learned both mentally and physically. In truth however, if you want to truly experience your reality, to feel as if it is more than merely some alienated superficiality, then you must learn to grasp before you release rather than the other way around. In every motion, compliant with natural law, should your effort flow through your body as the wind through the leaves of a great oak tree. 
only when your follow-through motion reflects the natural follow-through of your mind, your soul, your heart, will you play the game as it was meant to be played. In this episode we'll be discussing ways of looking at nature and creativity to produce glitches. Nature is all about patterns. From the movement of the leaves in the fall breeze, to the movement of the stars, to the sounds of water droplets running downstream, to the rush of ants picking and pulling apart some refuse. In fact, it becomes difficult for us to manifest something that is truly random. Even with computers, we find true randomness quite elusive. Patterns are what drive us. Patterns are what lead us. Patterns are what free us. So next time you see that drop of water snaking its way down a window pane. Next time you see that leaf blowing in the wind. Remember, the better you are at creating patterns, in the way you do everyday things. The closer you come to seeing reality as it truly is. In a previous episode one talked about using dancing to produce patterns and break them. I started with a group of two. I told you to play a game. In this game, the leader would put together a pattern of five dance moves in sequence, while the follower would mirror those moves. The time it takes for both the leader and follower to mirror each other purposely is the time until the follower becomes the leader and the leader the follower. Now, this time, I'd like you to imagine being surrounded by a dozen people. In this exercise you perform a similar feat, except this time you have to incorporate orientation into it. In other words, since we know that a common orientation in space relative to some object creates a gateway, the goal here is to use orientation and shapes to maximize mirroring at trigger points and then watch that mirroring fade away. The overall pattern of the movements should replicate patterns being created and then broken, over and over again. You can think of it as being performance art. You can think of it being akin to the whirling dervishes of Sufism. Or you can think of it as peeling back the veil of reality, uncovering the hidden truth beneath the gestures of humanity. Now, imagine any creative endeavor with the same principles in mind, create patterns and break them, orientation should reflect certain geometric shapes, use mirroring of patterns and break the pattern and create archetypal forms, turn your creativity into an opportunity to uncover the truth about existence. And I assure you that you won't be disappointed. In this episode 1 we'll be discussing the architecture of the system beyond mastery, beyond accepting responsibility for everyone and everything, as set out in the final book of how to create a glitch in the matrix, the complete series. Mastery of the system entails the recognition that one manifests the substance of being, orchestrating others in one's experience into manifesting the narratives of affirmation and abnegation. It entails recognition that one is responsible for everyone and everything that even time marches to the drum set by you. Once one has accepted one's ultimate responsibility for one's experience, in a fundamental way, accepting that one is responsible for the substance of creation, then one will find that certain things occur in one's immediate surroundings. First of all, there are two forms of action within the context of mastery. First there is action which is further to a role or archetype. Second there is action which is fundamentally new which results in experiential learning, which relies upon an idea of something. In the case of archetypal mastery, this produces hierarchy or subordination of others within one's sphere of control to the manifestation of one's impulses. 
in other words, overlaid upon the corners, so to speak of one's action, will be the manifestation of the impulses of others, acting out the impulses of others further to the role assignment, constellation. Now that subordination is effectively transitory, since in different narratives different individuals will have archetypal superiority, thus the mastery represented by the archetype is akin to a baton in a relay race. Each person in their particular sphere of activity dictates the actions of other participants further to the manifestation of their impulses further to their archetype and the given archetypal constellation. In other words, mastery of the system becomes a cooperative rather than zero-sum endeavor, with each master manifesting their impulses in the interests of the group, for a time, before retiring their position to the next. This is usually the case except when children are involved who ordinarily manifest the impulses of their caregivers, unwilling or perhaps deprived of the extent of responsibility represented by mastery. Being subordinate to another's impulses is akin to being a passenger in a narrative created by reflexive role assignments. Choosing to reject one's ultimate mastery of the archetype has the effect of subordinating one to a passenger role regardless of one's knowledge or actual resources. The nature or content of a passenger's experience is reflexive, rather akin to reactive thoughts responsive to the internal thoughts and prejudices of the master, albeit temporarily, such that in escaping the sphere of control of the one holding the baton is akin to dialectical thoughts. So, for this episode, we will be discussing our power to shape outcomes. Now, at the end of the complete series, I commented how our reality is fundamentally shaped by our projections. We shape it passively and actively, through our attitudes and through our thoughts. At a fundamental level, the grounded outcome is more likely to happen. This means that if we think in terms of contingency upon some assumed perception, we are giving that perception substance. Likewise, we shape reality passively through our attitudes, which surround us, pervade us, saturate us follow us, and precede us. By virtue of these two mechanisms, if we for example assume something is zero-sum, or we approach it as zero-sum, then other actors will treat it as zero-sum. The principle of polarity, every thesis is met with its antithesis, a competitive exchange, is malleable, the product of how we are thinking about our own actions. Seeking to turn some common space into an advantage has the effect eliminating the culture of sharing which pervades it, reducing it to zero-sum and polar exchanges. Now, within the framework of shaping reality around ourselves, our ultimate responsibility for the reality we inhabit, it is fair to say that it is easy to lose track of our ultimate power, created by our grounding an event by direct or indirect ground. In other words, by controlling what we believe, we control the reality we inhabit. This means that when our thoughts are snowballing out of control, when we cease to accept our ultimate control, it is necessary to step back and say, reality is what you make it. Because failure to do so may result in the descent of the actor into a severely diminished state. Let me explain. If one believes one is powerless, surrounded by inhuman creatures of unlimited power, then one will descend into a reality where that theme pervades. It may be as simple as adopting a conspiracy theory, or accepting a faulty premise, but in time that belief can corrode the agency of one's mind and pervert the reality which one inhabits. 
I am not saying that if you believe you are a genie you will have the power to grant wishes. What I am saying is that attitude gives substance to outcomes. Belief grounds an insubstantial nothing and gives it substance. It may be as simple as a line of thinking which assumes a contingent statement. In this episode, we will be talking about the experience one will have if one reaches a state of comprehension of the machine which is the matrix. The first thing that you will notice is that people's behavior seems to no longer fit conventional expectations of behavior. People will behave in odd ways, part and parcel with a comprehension of your thoughts, as if they all possess omniscience or God-consciousness. They will know the details of your past as well as you do. They will know your tastes and your beliefs. The second thing you will notice is that your thoughts possess the quality of instant manifestation, which is to say they happen, all of them, instantaneously, as if you are directly shaping the substance of reality. You will find that the shape of things develops an inertia towards particular kinds of thoughts, namely those which violate some tenet of conventionality. Third, you will find that your self-image changes, you may begin to feel as if you are a famous actor, or an ex-boyfriend of your partner. You will notice in normal social transitions, these feelings seem to suggest a transitory possession of your place in things by someone else, as if you are an actor, merely playing a role. You may experience the consequences of an event that didn't happen to your observation, or you may lose time, or experience body switching, which essentially means that you notice changes in your physical appearance or characteristics. You may see doppelgangers or doubles. You may find time doesn't seem to flow naturally, or at all. You may discover yourself a passenger in another's manifested narrative. You may discover that people seem to fulfill the expectations created by your thoughts, in the sense that they stimulate a thought, which involuntarily manifests a result. As part of all this, you may get the feeling people are trying to tell you something, that you haven't accepted yourself fully in some fashion, and to experience God consciousness fully you must accept yourself. You may find that your accomplishments have been appropriated by others, as if you no longer possess the ability to hold things in attachment. You may feel as if you have gone mad, seeing people engaging in intimacy in unusual places, or mirroring you in unusual ways. You may hear things like powerful horns, the sound of distant trains. These things may all happen at particular times during the day or evening. Finally, you may find traces of things happening while you were looking away, while you were out of the room, or distracted. You may get a distinct feeling that things or people fit together in such a fashion as you can predict them. All of these experiences are mere harbingers of the experience which reveals the fabricated nature of existence. In this episode, we will be discussing the formation of the internal mind. Now, most people assume that their thoughts are private and they have a kind of space which is internal for their contemplation. This is only true to the extent that the negation of others, their filtering from our consciousness of the shadow parts of our being, preserves in us a kind of space created by our non-consent. In effect, the internal space we believe that we possess is an endowment, given to us by the individuals within the social system in which we find ourselves, to the extent of the non-intersection. It is a not a true space or absence but rather a failure of fulfillment. Every thought happens to its fullest extent, only our projections are filtered out by the negation of others. The appearance of enclosure is created by concealment, there is no actual space for the internal mind, 
just a non-intersection of two polar components, distraction, consent, mutual obfuscation, consensual reality. Negation and the shadow parts of one's being, created by concealment, preserve the existence of the internal mind, which is nothing more nor less than consensually obscured identity, enclosed, or rather expressed only in absence of other. Imagine that, in one's absence, there is no negation, others can express their identity completely, no need for distraction, but when intersecting, only consensual identity may be expressed. Which is to say, they only have internal minds reflexively, just as you have an internal mind reflexively. In effect our individuality and the internal freedom that goes with it is a privilege a direct endowment from those around us and the consensual reality which we inhabit, a causal consequence of their negation of our identity, to facilitate their own individuality. Of course, all of this follows from two principles expressed previously, namely, that the substance of the material is the same as the substance of mind. Or rather, we see the only difference in the lack of intersubjectivity of the non-consensual. Likewise, this also follows from the reality that there is no true distinction between individuals, all is one. In this episode, we will be talking about the choice. To start off, it is certainly true that reality is consensual, to the extent that we maintain our inhibitions, to the extent that we exist in a dualistic consciousness which is divided against itself. This division promotes the separation of our consciousness into a space of internal segregation. However, to some degree, our ability to earn the acceptance of those who care about us, ensures that the segregation of our consciousness need not be fully divorced from the unity of common mind, God-consciousness, or omniscient, resplendent unity of consciousness. It is in the possession of conscience that we distinguish, assume the mantle of dualism and divided self. Suffice it to say, in between the execution of an action and its inception, in the shadow of our intentions, is a place of opening, a place of totality, wherein resides a momentary glimpse of our connection to all others. Open thoughts are reactive thoughts, they are anticipated thoughts, which come unbidden from us in these moments of distraction. If we can exist outside ourselves in between our intentions, in the shadow of our impulses, we can see the connection we hold to all consciousness and things. The most frightening thing that someone can tell you is that you are accepted, entirely, for in that moment, the consensual reality becomes the unitary reality, the reality where your entanglement with countless others renders in you the fire of living passion. At least, for those whom such things are foreign, for those who hold to a refuge of individuality. But of course, such a place is not free of individuality, it is merely a place of folds upon folds, of people wound together like strings of twine. To explain it another way, a consensual reality compels you to absent yourself rather than accept those around you, because it would mean accepting yourself in the process. Your choice is clear. In the moment, to compel the alienation of others to preserve your self-negation, or to accept yourself and see others as they truly are. Imagine for a second that all the loneliness and alienation in this world is your doing, a product of your genuine desire to hold anonymity from God-consciousness. Imagine that the segregation of women in Mullah-controlled Afghanistan, imagine that the segregation of people by race, gender, or orientation, is all the result of your refusal to accept that we are all one. 
the multiplicity forged in the shadow of the impulse is mere symptom of a larger alienation, an alienation we impose on ourselves. That refuge is a place of clarity, but the alienation it imposes is a disease whose only cure is love. Can it be that refuge is ungodly? Can it be that our self-segregation must come to an end of its own accord? I don't know the answer, but I have to believe there is a place for both quiet reflection and quiet unity, a recognition that we may be all, but it is a quality acceptable to be one. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it please like, comment and subscribe.